read the passage I'll preach. And, uh, and I want you to follow closely as I read. It's very important, the order which John wrote the passage, which we're going to look at this morning. In John chapter 12, beginning in verse 36, the second part of verse 36. I want to read the passage and then, and then hopefully expound and explain the passage. Let's all, I know we're up and down a little, but let's all stand up as we read God's Word in honor of Him. And in honor of the Word. When Jesus had said these things, He departed and hid Himself from them. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes. God has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And John, in commentary on those, that passage that we have just read, says in verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory. And spoke of Jesus. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in Him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees the Father who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to the to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that His commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let us pray. Holy Father, You have spoken. Your arm is outstretched. Those who do not believe, believe to their own judgment, to their own doom, to their own condemnation. It is not Your failure, O God. It is the failure of anyone who refuses to believe the obvious and clear 
magnificent and powerful gospel message which you yourself proclaimed through your Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, it is you that we exalt this morning. I pray that you would send the Spirit to move on the hearts of lost men in this room. Give them a heart of flesh and remove their hard heart of stone. Take the scales that are on their eyes that they may see your glory. Draw them so that they will not wander in the darkness. Bring them to salvation for your name's sake. And for the saved, may we be reminded again of how glorious you are. May we have a vision of you through your word, by your spirit. It is in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the last two weeks, this being the third of a two-part sermon series. You like that, don't you? It's uh, often the case that somehow we end up making two series, sermon series, into three and four and five sermons. But in the first two weeks, we covered the first part of John chapter 12. And I told you at the first that what John has done in John chapter 12 is John has taken pictures, snapshots at the end of Christ's life. The last week, this is it. His ministry in public is coming to a close. Within a week, he will hang on a cross. He will be crucified. He will die. He will be buried. This is it. The grand finale. The crescendo, we might say, of the peace that is Christ's life on the earth. And it begins in Bethany. No greater snapshot may we see of the magnificence and the glory of Jesus Christ than that a Jewish woman would lose all sense of respectability to unbind her hair and pour a lifetime worth of saving from his head to his feet. Mary anointed Jesus Christ, one, because she knew it was coming to the end of his life, but primarily, I believe, because she exalted him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. She saw him for who he was. She was not deceived, as some of the people we will talk about today were deceived. And after the coronation of this king, the anointing, the public display of who he is, He then comes into Jerusalem for his final Passover on the earth. Riding on a colt, a donkey, which symbolizes peace, and paraded, paraded to the downtown center, which was the temple, by the people calling out, Save us now. That's what Hosanna Hosanna means. Save us now. Save us now. Hundreds of thousands of people on the hillside, surrounded by sacrificial sheep headed to the slaughter, and the Lamb of God in the midst of them, and they're crying out to Him, Save us now. Save us now. Can you get the mental snapshot, the picture of this King of Kings riding in on the lowliest of animals, representing the peace which He brought from heaven to all who would believe on Him. He came not on a steed of war, 
in his first coming. He came on a donkey, a colt of a donkey, proclaiming peace to anyone who would believe. What a beautiful snapshot. If you miss the glory and the significance of this picture, my fear for you is you've missed the gospel. You've missed it all. If you can't see Jesus in His coronation as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you probably don't know Him. You may know about Him, but you probably don't know Him. He descended down into the temple, and the leaders of the Jews began to grumble and complain, What good have you done? Don't you see that the whole world is going out after Him? They said this because most of the Jews in Jerusalem had gathered around Him and were asking Him to save them. They were proclaiming Him as the Messiah, long-awaited. But little did they know that the whole world was beginning to come after Him. Because right there in the middle of John chapter 12, last week's message was what? A snapshot that the Gentiles also would gather to Jesus Christ the King. The whole world's going out after Jesus. And then John says, beautifully placed, some Greeks who had gathered to the Passover came to Philip and said, Sir, we would see Jesus. If you can't see Jesus in John chapter 12, i got a question whether you can see Him at all. Because the Jews saw Him as the King of kings and the Messiah. The Gentiles saw Him as King of kings and Lords of lords. And then Jesus begins to teach. And He taught a message which was hard to receive which then in turn turned the audience against him because he didn't preach that he was going to sit on the throne and be the visible king to conquer all their enemies. Rather, he said, I've come to die that I might bear much fruit. This is not the Messiah they wanted. They wanted a deliverer physically, not a deliverer spiritually. If he did not fall to the ground and die, we would not be here. He then challenges his disciples to say, you also must die like me. You must fall to the ground. You must die to every dream, every hope, every wish, every false theology you've built of who I am. You must die to everything that is you. And you must live only because I live in you. And so, what is left? What snapshot would John close the chapter with. What picture would he give us at the close of the public ministry of Jesus Christ? Jesus would no longer speak publicly. The next public words he would cry out are from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the next public utterance that we know of. Other than that, he spoke privately to his disciples. That's the rest of the book. If you want to divide the book of John, the first chapter is the prologue. It's the introduction. It's the beginning. Chapters 2 through 12 then are the public ministry and display of Jesus Christ, His signs and His teachings. 13 through the end. 
preparation for death, death, and resurrection. His preparation for death in chapters 13 through 16 is the upper room discourse where we will go to learn about the crucial parts of our theology. He instructs his men. At the end of his life, he instructs his men as to what they are to look for, how they are to live, what makes you a follower of Jesus Christ. So this is it. How is John going to close out the most consequential life in all of history? With a picture of unbelief. It's the title of this message because that's the subject of the end of John chapter 12. He doesn't close out with this grand gathering of believers. He closes out with unbelief. May it be a warning to you and to me that despite what optimistic and foolish, foolish so-called Christians might say today, most of the world today does not believe in Jesus Christ. Don't believe the lie. Christianity is one of the largest religions in the world. But there are few Christ followers, few disciples, few who would give themselves completely, utterly to see Him magnified. That's how it closes. With a stiff warning, a strong call to believe by showing us unbelief. And so we launch off into the study here. As we look, I want you to look with me at these verses We first of all see that Jesus' teaching and miracles are rejected by those who who live in unbelief. I have become thoroughly convinced as I've studied this passage that God is no failure. Everything He desires to do, He accomplishes. If you are here today unbelieving, that is not God's fault. That is your fault. That is to your condemnation, not to God's. It is not that God is hard to find. Our family, many of you know, spent time this week in the mountains of Tennessee, the Smoky Mountains. We spent a lot of time in creation. I am convinced more than ever that putting a child, I told Aaron this, in the creation of God, outside of the hustle and bustle of daily life, Let them go and be surrounded by what God has done. The very outskirts of His ways. The mere finger work of our mighty God. Let them be surrounded for just a couple of days and they will begin to ask questions like, Daddy, what can we see that helps us know who God is? We spent a couple of hours one day talking about all the physical things God created, which remind us that there is a God. God's arm of salvation is not short. Neither is it weak. He is no failure. He accomplishes all of His purposes. But unbelief remains. Many see His miracles. Many hear His teachings. And they reject them wholesale. And some of them fill the pews of churches. These who would reject who Jesus Christ is. 
We've spent the last 50 years of evangelical life in this country inventing a Jesus that the whole world can accept. And in doing that, we are damning a generation to the fires of hell. You cannot have Jesus on your terms. You will have them on the Bible's terms, on God's terms, on His terms, or you will not have Him. You can't create your own Jesus. If that were possible, every Jew in Jesus' day would be saved because they cried out, save us now. If He had done what they wanted Him to, they would have believed in Him. They would have followed Him. They would have picked up swords and died on His behalf. But they couldn't create their own Jesus. They couldn't create their own gospel. They couldn't make their own way. It infuriates me to see supposed servants of God lead churches to coddle sin, to change the gospel, to speak of grace as if it is a cheap thing. Say this little prayer like it's some kind of nursery rhyme. And God will have to save you. That's a lie. More people in this generation will die because they said a sinner's prayer and walked an aisle and were dunked in some water. Then people will die and go to hell because they never heard of Jesus Christ. I tell you, it's better. It is better to leave a child in mystery and in utter confusion and desire to know than to relieve their worries by letting them do something that will not save them. Until parents, may I just say, as we launch off into this unbelief, may I just say, the best thing you can do to bring your child to Christ is exalt Him in your home. The best thing you can do to bring your child, your son, your daughter to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is be in the Word, pray the Word, live the Word. Please do not send them to VBS this summer and ask them to pray a prayer. You might find that what you get is a lot of confession with the mouth and no conversion of the soul. And oh, the pain of a mother or a father who then sees that little one grow to maturity and walk away from the faith. Not because they were saved and lost, but because they were never saved. And God help us if we ever, ever at this church begin to tell children when they come with questions about who God is and am I saved, if we begin to tell them, don't you remember little Johnny? You prayed a prayer 12 years ago. You got baptized. Don't you know you're saved? You got the dollar bill, don't you? You got the birth certificate. That is foolishness. And this passage shows us that is foolish. Every Jew at this gathering, would have been able to hold up the equivalent of a dollar bill with a date on it. They were all circumcised. They all had been to the temple. They had all eaten the Passover. But they did not know who the Lamb of God was. And they were unbelieving. And they most of them die without Him. And if you're offended by that Gospel, which caused you to reject all other ways of salvation except Jesus Christ alone, then you're not offended at anyone but God Himself. We talk about an omniscient God. He knows you. He knows you. He's not fooled by the words of your mouth. He knows you. 
And He knows these men. And He knows these women. And He knows these children. And He knows that unbelieving hearts cannot believe even when confronted by the miracles that are presented by Jesus. Listen, if they could be saved by clowns and cotton candy, Jesus would have no need to heal a blind man, to feed 25,000 people on a hillside, to walk on water, to take the eyes of a blind man and make them see. If they could be saved by face painting and carnivals, it would have been much easier. But they can't be saved by those things. They must be saved by seeing who He is. And who is He but a miracle worker? Man by his nature is totally fallen. There is nothing innately redeemable about us. I am a sinner. You are a sinner. Your child that is a day old is a sinner. They are not worthy of salvation. None of us are. I am not. We are all totally and completely fallen. In every area of our being, we are fallen. And we are, we, are, we are an assault against the glory of God in our very nature. We are enemies of God. That's what Romans 5 says. When your child rebels against your authority, they are only showing the DNA which is written in them. They hate God and His glory. They wouldn't say that, but that's what they do. Because that's what we are in our nature. You as their parents are haters of the glory of God in your nature, in your DNA. Your total inability leaves a man unable to believe even in the face of a remarkable display of evidence. Remember John 11, Jesus raised a man from the dead who had been dead four days. I don't think pyrotechnics will bring a person to Jesus Because the Son of God raised a dead man who'd been dead for four days and people were unbelieving. You say, well, the children won't be amused and people won't be happy and joyful. And if you just preach the gospel, nobody will come. When we say things like that, it grieves the heart of the Holy God. Who says, I think I have no need of your service. I really don't need you to wow them into the kingdom. Simply make yourself invisible. Hide behind the cross and I will draw all men to myself. Unbelief is the condition of all men in their nature. Paul didn't say a few people don't believe. Paul said all people unbelieve. All people are enemies of God. All people in their nature don't want God and salvation. They want their glory. They want their comfort. They want their way of salvation. That's what happens by our nature. Salvation is not dependent on our abilities to present the gospel. Let's look at this passage. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself in the passive. Even if you took this into the middle voice, hid is the act of God. God hid him from them. He was in a huge outer court of the temple, I believe, in the Gentile court, the largest section of the whole temple. There were thousands and thousands of people there. Jesus hid. 
like he hid often in his ministry in John, where they're about to kill him, where they're about to string him up. And yet he disappears. He hides. This is that similar case. He's hidden. Supernaturally, by God himself. Though he had done so many signs, John said, in their presence, they still did not believe in him. And that's why I say, salvation is not dependent on our presentation, our abilities. Listen, our job is to deliver the truth of God's word. His job, God's job, that he assumes position and responsibility over is saving people. I'm not saying we shouldn't practice, that we shouldn't learn new tools and new ways. We spent, what, 12 weeks this spring learning how to present the gospel better. I'm not against training. I'm for it. But in the end, if you stumble and bumble your way through a presentation and God, through His Spirit, empowers the gospel and converts a soul, it's God's glory that is gained, not yours. And if you present the most jam-up case for the glory of Jesus Christ ever invented by man and everyone walks away unbelieving, that's not your failure. If you've presented the purity of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, exalted Christ, lifted Him high, everything else is dependent on the power of God. When are we successful in our presentation of the gospel? When was Jesus successful? Because here, look at the verse. He did many miracles and teachings and they didn't believe. So he failed? No. He was successful because he did everything and said everything that his father had commanded him to do and say. He was a success, a complete success. No failure in the ministry of Jesus. When he died, he died with a small band of believers. A small band of believers. Many in our day comfort themselves by numbers. Many of you, unfortunately, and myself, we fall in the trap when the numbers continue to grow here at Grace Fellowship. We comfort ourselves that we must be right. More people are being saved. More people are coming. No. Sheer numbers. Though that is a good thing. We want people to keep coming. But that does not tell us whether we are success or failure. Some of the most successful ministries in world history have had very few followers. I called to mind Adoniram Judson, who labored for seven years with no converts. Was he a failure for seven years? Absolutely not. He was a success because he held out salvation through the preaching of God's Word to the native people of what we today call Burma. He held it out and he trusted God. It was a success, and nobody was being saved. Lottie Moon died a mere 90 pounds, starving herself to death with just a few children believing, and a little bit here or there in a village. She spent her whole life for the few. She was no failure. Because, because of men like her, women like her, excuse me, and men like Robert Moffat, the house church in China today is strong. So, it's not dependent on us. The miracles and the teachings of Christ were rejected. It's dependent on God. We see it in verses 36 
and 37. They didn't believe in him. The unbelieving heart rejects the saving arm of Christ. In verse 38, we see the prophecy of Isaiah in 53 verse 1. That, that itself is very significant. What is Isaiah 53? It is the passage of the suffering servant. John chose the, ver- the verse that he would claim as a prophecy. And his choice was of a passage which the Jews obviously didn't accept. Because they were looking for a triumphant king, not a suffering servant. And here in this first verse, which is quoted, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I know that sounds like defeat, but actually what he's saying is many have heard with their ears and many have been presented with the arm of salvation, but they've not seen it. That's what frustrates so many of us, isn't it? We hold out the pure gospel the first time and the people walk off and because we love men more than we love God, we then begin to soften the gospel, change the gospel, hoping they will be saved so we can get a decision. But in reality, we're just counting heads and noses, aren't we? Isaiah didn't change his ministry because people didn't believe it. Isaiah continued to hold out the suffering servant, the one who would die who would take our iniquities on himself. That was the message that Isaiah proclaimed. Isaiah 53, 1 is not a verse of defeat. I contend it is a verse of success. He's saying, we have preached the gospel. They don't hear it. We have extended the arm of salvation. They won't receive it. When a person is unbelieving, they reject the very way of salvation. They reject it. They reject this arm. They turn. So therefore, they are responsible. This is the balance beam of theology, isn't it? This is riding the horse. You get to the left or the right, you fall off. It's tough work, isn't it? Because in our minds, we're all saying, but God is sovereign. So why does He still find fault? If God wanted them to be saved, He could save them. So why does He still find fault with them? Some people resolve that tension by saying, God is sovereign over everything except salvation. In that regard, he leaves it to you. Total and absolute freedom to accept or reject Jesus Christ. That is unbiblical. That is not true. And we could go to many passages to show that that itself is untrue. All of the great men of the faith have accepted that that is untrue. Now, others fall off the beam on the right side. They say God's sovereign. Therefore, whoever he's going to save, he's going to save. And nobody's responsible at all. That is untrue. Man is absolutely responsible for every decision he makes. And God is 100% and absolutely sovereign over everything that occurs in salvation. It can't be, Carlton. It just can't be that way. Well, as Aaron said, it's the mystery. It is, for our finite and small minds, impossible 
But for God, it is not impossible. And so, look at the order right here. Some people want to run to verse 39 and say, therefore they could not believe. See, I told you they had no choice. God's sovereign. They couldn't do it. And others of you want to run to verse 38 and say, who has believed? It's their fault. God's not sovereign. It's total free will. No on both accounts. God is sovereign. And you are responsible. So when you hear the gospel preached and you reject it, you can't blame God. I sadly heard the report of a young lady this week who had been raised in a biblical church. She has jettisoned her marriage. She's walked away from her husband who's going into ministry. She told their pastor, He's done nothing wrong. He's been the model of a Christian husband. He has prayed for me every day. He has read the Scripture to me every day. He has been gracious and kind and a servant in our home every day. I'm leaving him because I'm not God's elect. I believe God elects those who are saved, and I'm not one of them. So therefore, I'll live however I want to live. That's utter foolishness. That's utter and complete foolishness. That's using God as an excuse for not submitting to His command to believe. It's God's fault I don't believe. He didn't choose me. That's not biblical. That's not what this passage shows. Look what he says. He walks the balance beam perfectly. John, the apostle, is a theologian. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Man's responsibility. Therefore, they could not believe God's sovereignty. For again, Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, this is what he's quoting. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. The fact is that God is shown to be gracious and merciful by extending salvation to those who do not believe and calling them and drawing them to His Son by His own will He does these things. He is not bound by anyone outside of Himself to save any of us. The fact is we all, if you want to take this analogy, are on the train headed for hell. Every one of us when we were born are headed that way. By our nature, we deserve wrath. And God lovingly and gently and graciously pulls people from the train. He pulls people from the train. You say, why didn't He pull everybody from the train? And Paul says, who are you? Pot. To question the potter. If he makes one for wrath and he makes one for his own glory and mercy, that's the potter's prerogative that he does that. But this passage is very clear. You're on the train to unbelief if you do not know Jesus Christ. You're there because you are an enemy of God. Unless you believe in Jesus Christ, you will stay on that train and die and go to a sinner's hell for eternity. 
And do not use God as your crutch to say, I'm in hell because I couldn't. I couldn't. It's God's fault. That's blasphemous. It's the worst kind of sin. The unbelieving, hardened heart of man is ultimately hardened by God, as we see at the end in 39 and 40. They are unbelieving, and then He ultimately hardens them. They hear the gospel time and again, and they reject it. And at some point, God hardens them completely. They have no hope. They will not believe. This Isaiah 6 passage is, is so beautiful that in the middle of this, he makes a statement. John does. That's our second point. Jesus' glory is clearly revealed in the Old Testament. Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of Jesus. And so the second point is that Jesus' glory is revealed in the Old Testament. And I want you to hold your place in John 12. I can't resist going to Isaiah 6. John did, so therefore I will. Because this vision that, John, that Isaiah had is one of the high watermarks of, Israel, of the, Israel, the people of Israel. Moses in Exodus 33 saw the backside of God's glory. The people of Israel reveled in this. They, they told it to their children. Moses was a hero. Moses was the great prophet. Isaiah, also a prophet, was championed because he had a vision of God, which they sang about, they wrote about, they talked about. It was one of their favorites. Look what Isaiah 6 says. In the year King Uzziah died, your earthly king is no more. He's passed away. Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. The only passage in the Bible that mentions seraphim as a name. Burning ones. Shining ones. These angels are in the Holy of Holies of heaven. Every day saying one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah. That's Isaiah 6. Jehovah, God, the proper name of God, the Lord of hosts, that is my name. The Jews said, Isaiah saw God. John said, Isaiah saw Jesus. The next time somebody says, Jesus never claimed to be God, and neither did his apostles claim he was God. You can quickly turn to John chapter 12, verse 41, and say, oh, yes, they believed he was God. What is this vision? God is sovereign. He's seated on the throne. He is sovereign. 
God is unchanging. God is unmoved. God, in His glory, in His essence, seated on the throne, rules and reigns over everything in the universe. Psalm 115, our God is in heaven and He does whatever He pleases. This displays the sovereignty of God. In this vision, Isaiah saw Him as the King of kings, the Lord of hosts. That's Jesus, the sovereign one, seated on the throne. And His train of His robe filled the temple. There is no God other than this God. You're looking for another way to heaven, another gospel, another hope. There is no other hope. Jesus Christ is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And the fact that He fills the temple with His robe shows there is room for no other gods. Often in the pagan temples, there was a primary God, and then there were a lot of little gods on on pedestals around Him. Not in the, the, the temple of heaven. In the temple of heaven, there is one throne and there is one God and he fills the temple. There is no room for any other God. That's why he said in the great commandments, the second one, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't make images of other things and call them God. I alone am God and there is no other, Isaiah would say. He's sovereign. He alone is God. We see in this vision that he is worshipped. And that may seem small to you, except that the temple of heaven is filled with this chant, this praise, continually going before Him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who rules and reigns on the earth. Look what it says. And his earth, the earth is full of His glory. It shows His honor, His glory, His kingship is over all the earth. There's not one inch of this planet which God is not the king of that inch. He is God and there is no other. And he's being worshipped as that great and high God continually, every day. When we sing, when we pray, when we preach in these moments, if our eyes could be opened spiritually and we could see the hosts of heaven worship with us, we join their chorus, we sing his praise. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. We aren't alone in this worship. Do you know the angels of heaven look at the church to see that their God is worshipped and they worship God because we worship. They return worship to Him because He saves sinners. Don't come here and think what you do is trite and simple. We have the opportunity to worship the living God to join the host of angels In heaven, one day, he will split the sky, this king of kings. And the eyes of the people will be opened. And we will begin to sing along with them. Worthy, worthy is the lamb who sits on the throne, who was before the foundation of the world and who will be after the foundation of the world. And our eyes opened to the hosts of heaven. They're singing now. They're worshiping now. Join them now. That's the vision. That's the picture. He's sovereign over all the earth. There is no God beside Him. Join the chorus of worship now. Don't be unbelieving. Be believing. That's what John is using this vision to say. 
And then we see that you can't worship Him and be unchanged. If you're here and you're lost today, you can leave unchanged, but you will leave that way because you have been untouched by His presence. When you come into the presence of God, when His Scripture is opened and your spiritual eyes see it and your heart is made alive, you can't resist it. You will worship Him. You will worship Him and you will serve Him. Not out of duty and obligation, but out of passion, out of joy, out of love for this King. The life of a Christian is not toil under the sun. That's the futility of mankind. The life of a Christian is joy in His presence. So John equates Jesus and Jehovah. The glory of God is seen by Isaiah. And yet, we see that Jesus doesn't accept all of these people. Look at verse 42. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. The belief of the authorities is only partial in verse 42. They believe, but not unto salvation. They have what we call cheap grace. They have cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about cheap and costly grace. On pages 48 and 49 of his work, The Cost of Discipleship, he writes the following. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy for which sake a man will pluck out his eye if it causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Bonhoeffer says such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man, his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, but grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God His Son. And what cost God cannot be cheap for us. I get the feeling Bonhoeffer would not fit in our modern version of evangelical so-called faith. 
or you come to Jesus on a nursery rhyme. You keep all you got. You gain all Jesus has. And it costs nobody. It costs nobody. That's cheap. Cheap grace doesn't bring a man to heaven. Cheap grace damns a man to hell. And you can attend a church and you can hear preaching all your life. And you can die with cheap grace. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our lives, but delivered Him up for us all. As Peter says, you were bought with a price. Costly grace is the incarnate God. And that's what John in this chapter, in these verses is saying. He quoted Isaiah 6. Because he said, grace is costly. It cost the Lord of glory everything. But he did not shudder. He did not turn. He did not, he did not lose heart in the day of salvation. He drew men to himself. The belief required for salvation leads to discipleship and sacrifice. It costs you everything to follow Jesus Christ. It transforms your work, your family, your relationship with your friends, the goals and motives of your life, your possessions. Jesus Christ did not sell cheap grace. No, He called you to leave it all for Him and follow. The belief that is required, disregards man's approval in favor of God's approval. Look at verse 43. The reason they bought cheap grace was because they loved the approval of man more than they loved the approval of God. And many of you bought cheap grace somewhere along the way because you wanted your friends to like you more or you wanted your preacher to be proud of you or you thought it would be the right thing to do since people spent a lot of time and energy getting ready for Sunday school. That's all hogwash. That's not worth the paper it's written on. It's cheap. That's loving the glory of man more than the glory of God. Paul said, at the moment that I begin to covet and seek after the approval of man, I have lost the approval of God, therefore I am not a minister of the gospel any longer at that point. If you came to salvation based on finding approval of your parents, your pastor, your friends, fitting in the cool crowd at church, getting the girl you wanted to marry you, if you bought it for that reason, you didn't buy salvation. But if you came to the fountain of life and said, I'm so thirsty, if I don't drink from this fountain, I will die. If you came to the cross and said, I am dead, yet I live because He lives in me. If you came saying, I have nothing to hold in my hands, all I have is you. Fill me with you. If you came to purchase the pearl, which is of great price, if you sold all you had to buy the field to bring the treasure into your heart, you have treasure in heaven. You really are a believer. You are not unbelieving. And it is grace, 
costly, but it is grace. On that day, you will stand, according to 1 Corinthians 3, with all the rubble of your life burned away, naked before Him, saying, all I needed was you. That's all I needed. That's all I needed. Jesus' summary of His whole teaching ministry is found here. Whether He said this in this time or at another time, and John has edited it and put it here, We don't know, but it's the same message. Belief in Jesus is belief in God. You can't get there by believing in a Hindu mantra, by confessing faith in Allah, by being a New Age spiritualist. There's no other way to God except through Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And whoever sees Him has seen God. And judgment in the end will be based on a rejection or acceptance of Jesus as Lord. Jesus said, my word stands. And on that day, it is my teachings which will condemn or my teachings which will approve. He will not, but his words will. The Father will separate the sheep and the goat. Those who are saved and those who are lost based on the acceptance of the gospel that Jesus preached. Not the gospel that I preached in my own flesh. Not the gospel on some televangelist show. Not the gospel in your private study. And you invented your own Jesus that you could follow more easily. It won't be based on that. It will be based on the pure, unadulterated word of Jesus Christ. Accepted or rejected. Rejected means you are lost. Accepted means you have eternal life now, abundant and dwelling up inside of you. And so he closes his ministry with this warning to believe. The light is shining. The light is shining. Salvation is today. The question left to be answered for you and for me is will we yield, will we bow the knee, will we believe, or will we continue in unbelief? Let's pray.